Thank you very much, Linda. And uh, well, thank you everybody for being here, and thank you Yael, also for inviting me. Um, well, and as, uh, as uh, Mika has just introduced, um, I work in Japan and uh, so far my research is mostly about um, immigration situations in Japan. Recently I'm doing uh, migration situations in Germany, just try to compare. Maybe sometimes you need different perspectives. So today this is a topic, it's given by Bia and Mika. <laughs> and so I try to um, put two of the projects I've done, and the one has published, is, is being published, the other is still kind of a working project, uh, to put together, try to um, fit um, the themes into the broader topic of uh, rep reproduction. And in particular, I think that my focus is on social reproduction. So I'm introducing today essentially two uh, recent trends of migration uh, out of China. So. Um, First of all, I think uh, China has been developing and changing very fast. And uh, China was a socialist country, supposedly, theoretically speaking, still a socialist country. But it didn't have much of uh, a class uh, concept until uh, late 1980s. But increasingly, because of the economic development and all those uh, different uh, levels of development within the society, there's an increasing uh, sense of class. You know, people started talking about the middle class or elites um, as early as the late 1990s. And uh, much uh, Chinese uh, sociological uh, research is about um, how do you define class, how do you define elite, how do you, ca you categorize people, and the main, the main a concern in early 2000 was that China had very small middle class, but you have you know increasing larger, um, uh, increasingly large uh, 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 rich people, and there might be a kind of a polarizing tendency. So um, in China also there's a um, stronger sense of a class consciousness. Because it was a society, you know, class was not really relevant. So they still have to think um, what defines the elite. So what constitutes, say, middle class? And what will be um, um, equivalent to this particular class uh, uh, position? And oftentimes, as um, different classes in all societies, consumption is a signifier of your class position. And people also time, uh, oftentimes take consumption as a form of identity for your class. This is, a, a, a thing very well known in sociology. Uh, I'm a sociologist by, by training. Um, however, in, in China, while this class consciousness and status of consumption is going on, um, and also concepts of elite is being debated, in China itself, you know, there are two things that are kind of particular to this social formation. Uh, one is the social mobility is tied very closely to the educational system. In China, you know, I think it would have to do with uh, um, the, the traditional uh, examination system. They always select the elite from the model of people, theoretically speaking. Again, you know, it's never direct. It's like it's not like everybody has equal chance of competition. You have to have the resources to study all day so that you can actually uh, compete in the elite exam. So education system is a very much uh, um, this kind of open institution, theoretically speaking, open to all. So people just get into this kind of rat race to, uh, to, to race to the top kind of system. And that influences your employment, again, theoretically speaking, but most Chinese people embrace it. 
The other thing that's very particular to Chinese society is the household registration system, which creates essentially a kind of regional divide between uh, different places in China. You have coastal cities who are developed and people who are inland who are less developed, but people from inland have trouble working or finding work in coastal cities. And in the old time, before 1980s, people even had you know, basic trouble even just to find food in other places because everything's tied to rations. So the household registration is still, this legacy is still lingering um, in the uh, uh, contemporary society. It's, it's being relaxed, but still, um, it's a, the, the effect it can still be, uh, can still be detected. So, you know, if we want to discuss it, we can do it later. Um, on the other hand, you know, um, when there is this, um, um, uh, opening up of Chinese society, and also there is this kind of globalizing of um, um, a lot of index and uh, labor markets and uh, education market. Um, I think uh, geographic mobility has become uh, a source, or become a kind of a strategy used by uh, many uh, people, in especially Asian societies, and maybe even other societies, use a, a, a kind of a form to supplement um, their um, kind of education mobility within the country. For example, in Singapore, in Hong Kong, people will send their children to the West and overseas to get a credential and come back. And um, um, I think this has to do, especially in Asia, in China, this has to do with, first of all, the West still uh, features prominently in people's imaginaries because the Asian modern, you know, modern uh, the sense of modernity, modern nationhood comes from the West, and the first uh, group of elites in Asia were all, you know, uh, kind of educated in the in in their former um, colonial um, countries. So. Um, so this West has always kind of been a very strong um, symbol of uh, modernity, excellence, and also elitism. However, this kind of uh, um, cultural capital um, acquired in, in the West, of course, according to Iowa Wan and also according to uh, the Waters, uh, there, are different, there are different ways of uh, uh, using that kind of capital, capital and what uh, both our Wong and Waters have found out is for Asians who have acquired Western education or that sort of cultural capital, actually in the West they do not necessarily have an advantage just because they still face this kind of racial hierarchy in their destination country. So a lot of them actually bring that kind of uh, credentials back into their um, uh, home countries. There, you know, their kind of Western credentials will be recognized more. So this is uh, something that's, uh, that's actually is already happening in Asia, but uh, we'll see actually the similar things are happening in China just with a kind of twist. <coughs> so today I'm going to present uh, two uh, mobility trends. One is about the wealthy Chinese. And um, um, I, can, I, I consider their kind of migration as a form of class consumption and reproductive strategy. Uh, the other is student migration to the UK. So this is kind of uh, uh, relevant to maybe to this context. Not necessarily this institution, but many others. So I'll go quickly The trend one, migration as a class consumption and reproduction. This is the house I stayed in Orange, Orange County in uh, California. 
you know, uh, Orange County is the number one destination of the wealthy Chinese. The U.S. is the most attractive place, and this is uh, owned by a Chinese person and uh, one of my informants. This this house cost over three million U.S. dollars. So. <laughs> Um, starting from early 2000, there was this increase of trends of uh, um, rich Chinese migration out of China, going to US, Australia, and different other European countries. And in China, some people call that a third wave of migration out of China. You have first wave of family reunion in the 80s and student migration. Later on, you have student migration, a skilled professional migration, for example, in Canada, as a skilled migrant, just in order to qualify for the points. The third is rich. Uh, migration. Um, some statistics. First of all, um, there are over 1.86 million families in Greater China area that has a wealth over 1.5 million USD by 2017. And Hu Run is a report of Rupert Hugelwerf. Who is an Eton graduate and also graduated from Durham? And this particular person went to China, tried to educate Chinese people, how to be rich people, tried to kind of uh, list all those uh, rich people in, in his reports, and he has made himself very rich as well. <laughs> so, who are the Chinese? Basically, you have private entrepreneurs. The richest person in China right now is Jack Ma, you know, the owner of Alibaba. And the second is real estate investors because China you know, went through a quick development. A lot of people bought houses in 1990s or early 2000s. They're very rich and people just invest in real estate. And in real estate investment, it's very particular uh, to, to Asian investment because um, um, you know, there's, actually there's a historical background for why Hong Kong, Singapore, China, people particularly like investing in real estate. And then also start market investors, which recently they have lost quite a bit of money, and also high-paying professionals. The average age, this was in 2011, um, when Hurun uh, advertised this age, average age of the richest people in China. It's my age. <laughs> exactly my age. I think it's also Biao's age. <laughs> in 2011, it was 39. So that's really, like right now, by 2018, they're in their mid-40s. Why? Because uh, people like us, I grew up in China, born in China, went to college in uh, late 1980s, early 1990s. We had a lot of uh, opportunities when the, the society was changing rapidly. So many of them actually made a lot of money. And that actually was one possibility for me to do this rich this project on rich people because I do have friends and uh, social networks full of rich people. And among these rich people, many desire immigration. According to the most recent report, over a third of those high net worth in the, uh, individuals wanted to, consider, uh, wanted to Im immigrate. And uh, it's, it's already a drop from the last year, but 12% of them are already immigrated. Um, this is 2016. 64% of people then were considering migration or were in the process of migrating. When you talk about um, reasons for overseas immigration, the top three reasons, the very first one, 76% of them say education. This is basically the quality of education. The second is the environmental you know, pollutions and uh, basically environment. The third is hoping for an ideologic environment. So e everything there is, is, is about basically education and consumption. Lifestyle. 
This is, uh, this is the particular visa category that is most popular among the Chinese. It's called the EB-5 visa to US. Basically, you invest half a million or a million dollars, you can get a permanent residency. They call it employment-based category five, that's EB-5. And all the red bars, look, look uh, recent, you know, after 2010, basically, most of the people who got that visa were Chinese. The red bars are Chinese. Um, so, the profile of the immigrants, the kind of people who try to go um, to US, Australia, and Canada to uh, um, you know, get a permanent residency there, they said that they're actually quite highly educated. 55% of them um, have graduated from university. Um, and the level of wealth is over 10 million renminbi, which is uh, about 1.67 million US dollars. So my, this is my first project that I have published um, a couple of years ago. The, at that time, I tried to understand the meaning of this group of uh, you know, people who, who are migrating, why, why they want to migrate. So I used a lot of media reports at the time. I was really kind of uh, discussed. And also I interviewed with the Chinese uh, families some multiple times, and also immigrant agents and lawyers in LA and in Shanghai. And also because I lived there and with those people, and I used quite heavily also these reports and statistics from the government. So I think this is some of the popular explanations at that time during the media. I just want to say, you know, people talk about how these people were guilty of the kind of money they have accumulated because the first barrel of gold is never clean. That sort of things. And so these are the typical reasons people. Give. And it's, I think most of them kind of touched on the real reason. But I see this is actually one quote from one of my informants. He said, if it's a problem can be solved by money, it's not a problem. So immigration, leaving China, represents a solution to a problem that we cannot solve by money alone in China. So, and then after interviewing those people, looking at how they live and the way they migrate and the channels they migrate, I, I draw the conclusion that mobility is, in fact, is a form of uh, class consumption. This is uh, what Huri Report tries to educate uh, those Chinese rich people um, with. So if you want a global elite, these are the things you need. I don't know how many of you carry any of those. Um, Lamborghini and that champagne and that is the Patek Philippe. Obviously, it's a very expensive watch. And in the middle of it is the American passport. This is all the images they provide in their magazines. Um, so, you know, we're talking about consumption. So that actually makes me uh, think to try to interpret their way of doing things. So, because uh, this talk is going to be on reproduction, I just, this is going to be uh, uh, gone through quickly. Um, so basically, shenfen, status itself, especially status is a citizenship or permanent residency, residencies overseas, overseas is a form of commodity that these people want to uh, possess. And they call that, my uh, shenfen means buying the status. Um, so, because such a status costs so much, 
primary cost so much, so they've become a kind of status symbol for these people who can possess that commodity. In fact, one of the uh, people I interviewed in Shanghai was telling me how she felt a kind of middle, upper middle class who tried to do that. This is not for them. You know, they, are, they don't have enough money to do this. They have barely enough money. So uh, for, for her, obviously, this is only for the rich. And uh, some of them um, also um, do this uh, status thing, but this is uh, kind of interesting. These people do not really want to live there. They have this, uh, this uh, notion called uh, immigrating without settling. This is actually a slogan promoted by those brokers, by this uh, you know, immigration consultancy people. Is that uh, you can immigrate, but you don't have to settle. And um, because the immigration, there's a status you purchase so that you can consume uh, it's a cheaper uh, for the same goods you get in China and also, for example, the, this particular informant, this is a WeChat channel, and it, he said, you know, I, I want to have another child recently at age of 47, which is my age, and his wife is my age as well. Of course, he also has uh, different lovers in China. This is another logic <laughs> of this migration because, you know, a lot of rich Chinese business people have a multiple romances and in order to separate the household and uh, romantic feelings <laughs> and the migration becomes a kind of a also viable way to, to do that is to substance allow them to demonstrate their masculinity but this particular man said well, I have one, I want to have one more baby and, uh, and her 47 year old wife recently just had the third baby so we all kind of congratulated her um, so this is, a, you know, you can see basically the logic of migration is not really um, the, the what you imagine conventionally, like kind of try to improve your economic situation, rather it's really con consumption. And this is the most recent uh, um, uh, report, 2018 one. 90% of the Chinese sort of people who are considered even not even immigrating yet. 90% of them want to retire in China. So basically, this is not a kind of residential uh, process. You don't move to live in another country. You move so that you can get status, you can get that sort of uh, consumption patterns. And, um, um, and also, this is oftentimes among the rich people. It's, it's a kind of a topic they talk about. So they, oh, they, let's do that. And they will get all those people uh, in their network to do it together. And I visited one a development in Walnut Hill in California. 100% of huge development, the houses were purchased by Chinese people. And half of them were, were Chinese people from the same company. Why? Many of them do not speak very good English. And many of them, they're already adult. They have already accomplished. They don't, they don't feel they can make mingle in the into the local society. They want their own rich network to come to play mahjong with them, to play golf with them. So that 100% of social network was still within that, even though they're living in California, they just moved their social network to California so that they can do that together. So you can see it's a really, it's a, this is the one up here. But the other thing that's relevant to our today's topic is really the, um, um, the reproductive, reproductive part. One um, phrase that all those uh, people mention all the time when I ask, when you ask them, so why do you want to immigrate? Education, remember, is one of the top reasons. 
and this and um, they always say, oh, you know, I want children, my children to be happy. Chinese education system is so conservative, the rat race, they're miserable, they're depressed, they're too busy. And um, so one, the first one, um, play is very important. Children should enjoy their childhood, should be happy and play. And um, the second, of course, as I said, Shangchen means upper crust. You have to play, but play the upper crust games. So, um, so this kind of immigration essentially becomes a kind of a strategy to allow the children to enjoy that kind of uh, childhood they feel they deserve as a rich child. And the second is that this will also allow them to have the cultural capital that makes them uh, and the global elite. They'll have certain skills, English, education credentials, elite, and the characters. This is a, a one informant said because he, she had a son. She said, oh, living in this town, not Shanghai, this is in town near Shanghai. He's not going to be a, a manly man. He will be xiaojiaoziqi, means it's just like very kind of, uh, um, a little bit kind of, uh, how can I say that? It's, you don't have that kind of uh, um, casualness, public composure, or character that will allow you to face a broader world. Instead, you just be kind of petite, kind of calculating, and uh, just be timid. So this is really the kind of uh, um, uh, character they don't think that, that their children should be, should be given. Um, and also, there's a, this is a quote from another person which is quite uh, naked. And he said, people like us are all Im immigrating. If staying in China, my children will have to marry the children of my drivers and employees. So you can see it's a reproductive strategy, not just education and stuff, and also potential marriage partners. So I think you can see the, 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 the rich, crazy Asians, they want to marry <laughs> other rich, crazy Asians. It's essentially the same logic. Um, so, just, uh, I think I'm wrapping up the first part of my um, discussion, the, the, the project. I just want to kind of uh, show this case to, um, to, to, to argue that um, this kind of mobility, this rich people's mobility, uh, essentially is to solidify class boundary by uh, you know, um, status consumption and consuming particularly exclusive commodity, which is uh, uh, mobility. And, uh, and overseas residencies. And it also signals the emergence of a self-conscious status group. Um, and uh, also mobility is a really is a incorporated into this elite lifestyle. And also for these people, um, you know, in China you have this uh, stigma of being a rich person, especially the first generation rich uh, people. And people always always feel like, oh, you're just nouveau rich, right? You're just country bumpkin, so you just happen to use illicit means and to accumulate this kind of wealth. So you have this term called tu hao, basically literally tu means soil. Hao is the prosperity, so you, you, you are prosperous out of the soil, so you still have this earthy tone to it. But these people don't want to have that kind of uh, stigma. They try to use mobility by sending their children overseas to, by, uh, by giving their children the kind of uh, global elite lifestyle and education to ascend into this global, global elite uh, position. Um, 
So this is the most recent one. 14% of these people regard themselves as a global citizen so with a financial freedom, visa freedom, and overseas education regarded as defining features of a global citizenship. So that's what, what they were looking at. This is the, their aspiration. Okay, this is just to amuse you. Um, I know many of people here might not uh, entertain the idea of Brexit. Um, but for the Chinese, obviously, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> UK has become number two most aspired in, uh, country of destination aside from US. You would think the Trump land might not, not be that attractive, but it doesn't really matter, matter to the Chinese uh, rich people either, because actually, um, last time um, when they were voting, uh, many of them who were eligible, who were, who were on Trump's side because of all kinds of social issues that they, they were actually on the conservative side. Uh, so UK is the second, and um, the reason investment in immigration to the UK comes with the benefits of the one's children enjoying an elite British education. So if you look at Eton or other kind of uh, public schools uh, uh, application list, you will see a lot of Chinese names, and so are in uh, in US. Um, many of those elite schools have uh, a lot of awaiting uh, Chinese uh, stu students. So, um, the Suhuri Report uh, founders that Brexit has has had little impact on Chinese entrepreneurs. In fact, because you know the vol volatility of uh, uh, British real estate markets uh, makes uh, uh, London an attractive destination. So it's just uh, for for your amusement. Um, I'm going very quickly. Um, the trend second, um, second is going west in order to go east. This is actually talking about graduate students' education mobility to the U.S. Uh, to the U.K. You can see, you can see these two are very different. But I want to argue, both really represent um, the kind of class anxiety, the class consciousness in China, and both are strategies uh, to to kind of earn particular positions in a desirable class position, class, class, class hierarchy. So um, in China, if you ever go anywhere, you will see education advertisement, especially overseas education uh, advertisements everywhere, literally uh, everywhere. And this is an um, um, education fair, overseas education fair I attended uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, this is in Grand Hyatt. And this is one education broker. They rented three floors of Grand Hyatt Convention Center in Shanghai. I don't know how much that cost. <laughs> it's, it's actually it's a, it's 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 a stock is marketed at New York uh, stock market. Okay, uh, UK uh, is uh, very prominent there. So this particular thing, the reason why I was interested in it. I thought it doesn't make any sense because why so many Chinese students, um, especially at postgraduate level, want to go to UK, especially after 2012, because after 2012, UK can scrape its post-study work visa, so you can't just stay um, in UK trying to look for a job. That particular scraping discouraged a lot of Malaysian, Indian students. Um, uh, to stay in, 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 U, in the UK. But Chinese people are now everywhere. You go to different master's programs all over the UK. 
And some programs have over 90% of them Chinese, especially accounting, business administration, statistics, methodology. It's all Chinese, from the professors to the students. Um, so I, for me, in a person who never studied in UK, in, in UK, I just couldn't, because it's very expensive. You know, unlike Germany, you get free tuition, you can understand. So why do you want to spend so much money to go to UK for nine months, at most 12 months, to get a degree, and, um, and they have no chance to stay on in UK to work? And then, when they go back to China, it's not, it's not so easy for them to find a job either. And if they do, they're earning their wage, you know, salaries is not higher than people graduate from Chinese uh, uh, university. Why spending the extra money? So that was the thing I was kind of first be puzzled about. So my, my uh, hypothesis, this is after I did the Rich Chinese Migration Project. I said, well, they're rich children, so they just need, you know, UK elite education, you know, this very gentlemanly class kind of uh, image maybe appeals to them. So it's a kind of class-based consumption. The second is it's a guild, it's like, you know, you, you just want to have an addi additional layer of uh, gold on your credential. Um, the, the third one is I think, oh, it must be migration industry driven, because actually education migration industry is really big. In, in China and many other uh, in India, other Asian countries, those brokers were very active in channeling education, and also a lot of UK uh, educational institutions rely on those consultancy uh, brokers to bring in uh, students. They actually give these people kickbacks. So I think there must be migration industry. Um, um, and also, I, when I interview those people, when I go to their consultancy, look at their profiles. Many of them were UK graduates themselves. So I said, oh, okay, you can't find jobs. Now you open these and get other <laughs> So that was my cynical um, reaction toward, toward that thing and toward that kind of phenomenon. And also, you know, because you know, uh, education is an export industry in many education export countries, like uh, Australia, UK. They really rely on those uh, uh, international students to contribute to tuition um, income. Um, so it's, a, it's a really a big um, um, commodity. So in order to understand that, I talked to the Chinese families, and I, I went to those education fairs, and I talked to two education brokers, and also I tried to talk, I talked to 12 former UK students. And these are some of the findings. My hypothesis were not so far off, but there are complexities and unexpected findings. Findings. First of all, I I think it really has again, and you know, it's in China, you have this education race, which is cutthroat. Um, so most of those people who come to UK, I think, on average, they are middle class and. Um, not really, really elite people, especially those people who only come to UK for just one year master's program. Of course, they're, 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 they have adequate income and resources, but not really the top uh, 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 rich people. But in, in China right now, the middle class is the most anxious. I think maybe it's not just in China. In most societies, the middle class is the most anxious because you see the, the, the top, 
and you also see the bottom. <laughs> and uh, in in place like China, where education ensures your um, class position to a large extent, you see if your child does not get into this level of school, the opportunity for your child is going to be um, you know the bottom. So in fact. Um, um, many parents, they invest a lot on their children, are willing to invest in their children so that the children will not sink to the bottom. So it's really not investment uh, like, oh, I get a 120% return. No, it's always, you know, you have much less return from the actual amount of money you put in. But the fact is that if you don't put in that much, of, that much money, your child is going to be worse. So that's the kind of anxiety they have, that kind of thing, prevention they want to do. As this person says, you know, if, if there's a guarantee that my child is going to this company, I'm not going to invest, but there's no such guarantee. That's why I, I, I give him everything I have. In China, you oftentimes see those parents wearing very old and very cheap clothes and sending their children to elite schools. And you know, those education consultancy, in China, they started doing it in basically 10th grade or even 9th grade. And you have somebody tailored to the education development, helping them every step and without receipts. So in the whole process, two or three years, you can spend as much as over, you know, several uh, tens of, no, it's more than that. I don't know how to convert to the pounds right now, but um, it's very substantial. We're talking about even um, a million renminbi, you know, um, that, that amount of money. So, um, and the parents also invest in energy and money, uh, and thing, and energy and the time. But then in China, you know, you invest that kind of uh, education into children, but in China, if you graduate from undergraduate, Actually, uh, the job market is not so good right now. Um, this is uh, a couple of years ago, talking about um, how the um, higher education, you know, students who graduated from universities, they have uh, um, a lot of pressure to find jobs. And next, okay, this is actually amount of uh, Chinese uh, um, college graduates every year. You can see after 2000, it's really like going, shooting up, and many, many institutions have opened, different tiers of institutions. Private universities have opened, so you have a large enrollment. However, this is what determines the labor market outcome. This is a study done by Peking University in 2015. They studied uh, um, 15,000 students from 28 universities in 17 provinces. And um, they discovered that college graduates' labor market outcomes are influenced by degrees, first of all, education hierarchy. So in China, you have this uh, also hierarchy, internal hierarchy of higher ed uh, educational institutions. You have 985. In 1998, May, which is fifth month, then Jiang Zemin said, oh, we need to have also important universities, nine at the time. So you have those top elite, like Beijing University, Peking University or Tsinghua University, those are 985. Then you have another uh, 100 university called 211. So basically, 100 universities are going toward 21st century. They call this the Project 211, Project 985. So if you are not from these universities, 
your labor market chances are much, much worse. Um, and in particular, um, there is this regional gap. Not only monthly salary is a big gap. Um, in fact, um, in my own interviews, um, people from the regional uh, institutions and whose household registration are in the uh, region, you know, the, the pro provincial towns have a much harder chance to find a profitable job. So in China, this regional gap is still there. So that explains um, why overseas education is seen as a desirable alternative. First of all, you know, you, you, you try to seek an alternative hierarchy which is that we were talking about hierarchy just now. You have domestic ranking, you have the you know, 985 to 11, which is very difficult to go in. And you also have a world ranking. So in, for the Chinese people now with the globalization, they also see the uh, university ranking outside of China. So you have two kind of uh, ranking, each actually has significance to the people inside. So, um, Many people use overseas education, especially at a graduate level, to circumvent the system. So um, if you cannot, for example, uh, uh, you know, go to Fudan, you try to go to an institution that's overseas, that's, it's easier to get into, but you know, has an even higher ranking or similar. So this is actually education fair. And this is, um, is this all Chinese, I'll translate for you. <laughs> This is actually um, by a Shanghai um, uh, um, Human Resources and Social Security Bureau. This is an official document. And this is, uh, I, I checked, it's still there. So basically, this is said, in order to get a household registration in, China, uh, in Shanghai, which is the most, one of the most desirable places to live, and the highest earning place, so you, you have to have, either within the country, to 11 higher education institutions uh, and above. And if you're not from those institutions, what you need to do is you can go overseas if you get a degree, uh, like a master's degree, from a top 500 world-class universities. So if internally you cannot get into one of the top or good universities in China, this is the alternative uh, route for you to get a household registration in Shanghai. So, so for a lot of people who are in the provincial towns who have trouble finding jobs, and who, you know, um, many of them are uh, the ones I interviewed said they had first job, you know, it's really not poorly paid, and they decide they have to do something else. And um, many of those students did not graduate from 211 or above institution, institutions. So um, this kind of people who go to UK postgraduates, um, I found them mostly from relatively affluent middle class family backgrounds in the provinces. Um, and, and they did not come from elite university. Most of them actually came from non-elite universities, but they want to find a good job in big cities. And the desirability of UK graduate programs, first of all, English speaking. So in China, if you speak English, you still have that kind of advantage. And also UK also projects this uh, you know, status, this kind of a cultural um, 
uh, attraction to the Chinese people. And also, it's a shorter program. I originally said, why do you want to go there just for nine months? You don't even understand the country. What do you learn? And, but shorter program, actually, it's, 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 a, it's incorporated in, into their strategy because it's affordable. So they can spend. This is, Chinese students always calculate everything in, in Chinese uh, currency. So if they spend, instead of uh, 300K re, uh, Chinese uh, um, renminbi, you can, you, can, you can go to, say, um, you know, Sheffield or some other universities and a master's program. You can study, get a master's uh, degree. This is actually a figure. I don't know how official that is, but all those people I interview will tell me you can also buy household registration in China, but that in Shanghai, that costs this much. So it becomes a rational calculation of the balance, you know, the, 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 the gap between a degree in UK and this equally getting a household registration in China, you, you will have to spend this much money. So um, the, it becomes kind of a, um, Reasonable for those reasonable for those uh, students to to come to UK. The rationale becomes very clear. UK has a lot of world, you know, highly ranked universities, and this is very important. You go to all the education consultancy; they will give you ten universities to, uh, to apply for. They always hierarchical. You know, you shoot for top one, and see second tier, and a third tier. Each each costs different money, and. Um, um, the, the Chinese students, a lot of those uh, from provincial fa uh, middle class families would not come to London. It's too expensive. Uh, probably uh, not many of them are at Oxford, it's too difficult to get in. Um, so they, many of them will go to like Glasgow or other places reasonably or uh, eat, uh, cheap to live and lower threshold to, to, to enter. And it's heavily, again, it's heavily brokered. Uh, uh, education mobility. So um, the returned students, most of them will end up in major cities because that's an original goal. And um, and when I interview those people um, in Shanghai, some of them uh, already obtained hostel registration, and many of them tried for professional jobs. Um, because the desirable degrees will be like accounting or business, business administration. Um, so many of those, if you have kind of an accounting degree, you have a shot at a bigger accounting firm. And others who cannot get into a professional job, into the reproduction of the next generation of overseas students, they teach English. Many of them, again, the, the top, top, uh, bottom two categories are to reproduce that kind of educational mobility. So you essentially feel like, oh, actually, this is a profitable area. So you were a student, you have know-how, and you have others, and you, 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 you are in this uh, um, service. So, um, the, the, so I think from this kind of particular um, trend of uh, migration, you probably see that um, this international education has become a kind of a domestic mobility strategy. There are, in international migration, in migration studies, there's always this separation of international migration and internal migration. Partly has to do with methodological limitation. 
you do internal uh, labor migration or migration, you can use census. You, know, you can use population survey within a nation state, right? But you can't count these people when they cross borders. You always have this methodological difficulty to combine these two. Um, so this is a particular qualitative case, but I think this particular case indicates that uh, you know, internal and international migration are not separate. They can really uh, um, are linked. Um, so recently, um, Ronald Skeldon wrote a chapter um, for the handbook that um, we have just added um, on Asian migrations, and he talked about how the possibility of linkage between international and um, internal could be, say, step migration, you know, rural migrants move to urban centers to accumulate resources and move across borders when such opportunities occur, and or stage migration, the exit points of most international migrants are urban centers, so maybe, you know, um, you can go move to urban centers first, and then you actually move out. These are the two kind of proposition by Ronald Skeldon. But considering this particular case of Chinese students coming to the UK and go back to China, you know, you move uh, from central or west of China, you, you go west to UK, and you in order to go east to Shanghai, I think this re uh, represents another kind of uh, a kind of uh, uh, linkage between internal and international migration. And you can call that as a J turn. You go there so that you can go somewhere else, and it looks like a J shape. And this is an earlier um, a report. But people um, in Beijing, the, the, the survey in Beijing uh, has uh, um, noticed that only 10.1% returned students were born in Beijing. So there are many. Um, this is uh, all those uh, overseas uh, Chinese who came back to China and stayed in Beijing. And according to the Ministry of Education Study Abroad Service Center, the majority of returned students who were employed in Beijing era did not have their original household registrations in Beijing. The students with Beijing household registration were fewer than 10%. So you can see there's this J turn trend. And this is, I think, what also kind of demonstrated in this uh, uh, mobility of the Chinese student come to UK and then go, go, go back to China. So after you know, um, observing that, I was just thinking, is that contemporary? I think obviously not. It's just like we haven't really given that too much thought. Historically, international education has always been a domestic mobility strategy. Uh, this is, uh, for, for example, in China, in um, 1905, uh, the imperial, um, the, the Qing Dynasty abolished so-called imperial court exam. So you no longer choose the elites, uh, the, the top uh, bureaucrats from this kind of court, you know, exams. So what happened? All the students went to Japan <laughs> to get a degree in Japan. So there was a student study in Japan boom around that uh, time because the Chinese students, in order to show that they have some credentials to mark themselves from the others, they need some credentials. And that's uh, uh, when the Japan-bound education boomed, this early 20th century. So I think this sort of uh, kind of uh, mobility um, within a country 
but the taking the credentials uh, from overseas is not a new phenomenon, and it's not really limited to China as well. So, um, so wrapping these two kind of uh, seemingly uh, distinct cases together, I think um, they really signaled the kind of uh, social mobility and the reproduction strategies, even though they, you know, they, they look apparently different. So rich migration, obviously, their desire is to be among the global elite. They want children to be among the global elite, to somehow you know, see this kind of global hierarchy. And student migration to the UK, they have this anxious you know, um, anxiety about um, um, falling down. And also, it's a kind of strategy to overcome this regional disparity. So it's as a household registration as an institutional hurdle. They try to use this sort of a roundabout way to overcome. But the, both of them, you can see, they share this sort of uh, anxiety about class positions. And also, I think what you can see um, from these two cases is really the role of the West in Chinese culture and social imaginaries and identity making. And I think in Asia, except for Japan and Thailand, you know, most of the countries were colonized. And so the West really um, still kind of had, had a lingering power uh, in people's imaginaries. And I think that's where uh, there's a part of the cultural capital came from. And so it doesn't matter whether you're the domestic elite or you're domestic um, middle class, and still they take advantage of the Western experiences and credentials to, to, to shape their own uh, sense of self and state, status and position. I think that's it. I think I kind of rushed through the, the two cases, and I'll be happy to um, discuss with you if you have questions. Thank you. Thank you.